Hear the word of the Lord from John 2, 23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is, thank you for that. My name is Justin. I am the pastor of construction around here. <laughs> well, we got a whole lot done over at the new building this week. Uh, we installed all of the doors and trim in the kids' classrooms and offices. We got all of that painted as well. We removed the balcony in the atrium. Uh, the redesign on the stage began this week. Uh, man, there's so much stuff that's getting over, getting done over there. Carpeting of the kids' classrooms and the offices is beginning tomorrow. And we're also going, Lord willing, we're going to begin framing the new atrium as well. So things are progressing along nicely. We've had so many people help us out and volunteering over there. Appreciate that. Um, if you are wanting to partner with us in our mission to prepare this new building, to be a place where our families can worship God under one roof and that would act as a strategic base for reaching our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can really join us in three ways. Number one, pray. Pray that the Lord would sustain us. Pray that things would go well. We've had a couple surprises. You know, you remove a stage and, oh, there's a hole there. Okay, didn't expect that, you know. So there's been some surprises. Pray we have less surprises. Uh, pray for the people that are doing the work, that everybody stays safe and they do a good job and Let's just pray that we can get it done uh, in a timely manner. You can also give. So we have got over $600,000 pledged for this remodel. We really appreciate all of that. And if you want to get in on this, there's only going to be one opportunity to buy our first building. All right, this will never come again. So if you want in on this with us, there's pledge cards out there. We would, Or you can just mark your, your giving, uh, the building campaign through the website. You can give. And then three, you can volunteer. You can push a broom. If you can clean a kitchen, if you can paint, if you can demo, uh, if you're a carpenter, if you've got any skills like that uh, for mowing the grass, whatever it is, let us know and you can volunteer and you can help us save some money. We've already saved tens of thousands of dollars through the work that's been uh, donated for, for the volunteers in our church. So we are thrilled. We're really excited. Thank you for all those who are volunteering. And um, that's about it. So I'm going to pray for us. When you get into our text this morning, we've got a lot of work to do. Father God, we come before you this morning. We want to just have a, a proper a heart attitude towards you, that you are our God, that you are above us, that you have come before us, that you are in all things, that we, we don't know what's right for us. Uh, we are finite, and that means we can't hold all of the information in this world. We can't hold, hold it all together. We can't hold up even our own soul, even our own lives together. And so we need you. So would you help us today? Would you instruct us through your word? Would you teach us what we need to know and um, straighten out what's crooked within us? Father, would you help me as I'm just a man? Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would, would you speak to your people? Would you anoint their ears to hear and their hearts to believe the word that will be declared to them this morning? Would you do all this? For your glory and our good, and we pray for Isla Galliot. We pray that you would continue to give her strength, continue to strengthen and heal her body. God, you made our bodies, and you are the God that heals our bodies. So we 
entrust her to you now. We ask that you would have your will on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Well, if you are new here, Sacred City Church uh, believes that every word of the Bible is true because it was given to us by God. We believe uh, the scriptures themselves teach in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, it means good for us, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, complete, equipped for every good work. Here's what that means. Every young man, every young woman, every old man, every old woman in this room. I know there's no old women in this room. Uh, what we need is the Word of God. We need to be instructed. We need to come to a better understanding of the Word of God. That's how we grow into who we're to become to come to a better understanding of Scripture. Well, this is why we preach through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse. We want to know everything that God has said to us. We want to study all of it, not just the parts that everybody likes. I say that this morning because our text is a text that I have never heard anyone preach on before. I know pastors have preached on it, but unless a preacher is going verse by verse through John... There's just no way they're going to sit down and study and preach on this text. But I think it's an important teaching from Jesus if we were going to see his full glory and put our complete trust in him. I want to remind us of John's purpose in writing this gospel. He tells us in chapter 20, verse 31... These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in His name. So he's saying, I'm writing so that you would believe, and by believing, you would have life in Jesus' name. Well, he's already kind of done that several times in chapters 1 and 2. And John 1, 12, he says, to all who did receive Him, that's receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. How do you become a children of, child of God? You believe in Jesus. You receive him. Then after the miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana, John says this was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus showed up and showed out and then his disciples believed in him. Then after he drove the money changers out of the temple, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John says his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So again, John is on point with his thesis statement. He's writing with the purpose of helping people see the glory of the Son of God, experience his grace, and believe on him as the Son of God and have eternal life in his name. But here's the questions we're going to ask this morning. What does it actually mean to believe in Jesus? What does it actually mean to trust in Jesus as the Son of God and have life in his name? How do I know if I've put my faith in Jesus? Well, we're going to answer all those questions this morning. And uh, specifically from our text today, this section of Scripture is startling for a number of reasons. One, it presents before us a side of Jesus that honestly we rarely see and rarely think about. 
at least I rarely think about, namely Jesus' omniscience. Jesus' omniscience. Now, I've heard people ask this question a lot. Did Jesus know all things? Could Jesus see all things? Could Jesus? And people get a little confused about it. Well, they get confused about it because they never read this book or this verse. Yes, Jesus was omniscience. What does omniscience mean? It means he knows all things. He sees all things. And it's kind of terrifying when you get down into it and think about it. But secondly, this is a startling text, because this passage shows us a concept of faith that I believe is rarely taught. To put it in one simple sentence, I would say that Jesus here teaches us that not all faith is saving faith. What? Jesus here says, there's a way to believe in Jesus and yet not receive life in his name. There's a way to believe in Jesus and yet not become a son or a daughter of God. There's a way to believe in Jesus and yet not to have your sins forgiven and receive eternal life from him. Now that should wake us all up this morning more than the bombs that were going off down by the 74 bridge. That's a startling statement. You can believe in Jesus and yet not receive life from Jesus. What? I rarely hear people talk about this. So here's my goal this morning. I want us all to see Jesus in a unique and special way, a saving way, a life changing way, a way that will change your perspective on Jesus and who he is, on yourself, and what it means to be saved by him. Let's open up our Bibles this morning to John chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 23. We don't have a lot of work to do in our text. We've only got three short verses, so you're probably thinking you're going to get out early. No, you're not. You know better than that. All right, let's start in verse 23. Now when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, the first thing we're going to see here is that Jesus did a lot of signs, right? He was called a miracle worker. Now, these signs weren't, you know, just some kind of sideshow spectacle, they were very specific signs that were meant to point to his identity as the Son of God and point towards the work that he was going to do in his life, death, and resurrection to save people from their sins. Now, many of us today, many modern people today, read these and they just laugh them off. Oh, ha, ha, miracles, give me a break. But this isn't just something that's recorded in the Bible. This is something that actually happened. There's outside sources. There's sources such as Josephus, an early Jewish historian that writes this, quote, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. See, not even in the Bible, Jewish historians said, hey, one thing that was true about Jesus is Jesus did a lot of wonderful works. Jesus did things that drew people to him. Jesus did miraculous signs. But what we're going to see in our passage today the miraculous signs weren't the point. That wasn't the most interesting thing about him. Jesus was much more than a miracle worker. 
he was, and today we're going to see, he was also omniscient. He knew everything. And when we say that, we don't just mean that Jesus knows all the facts about everything in the world. He knows how the exact temperature of the sun. He knows the exact distance from us to Jupiter. He knows, you know, how many roads are in the United States. He knows how many gnats are in the United States. I'm not, there's a lot, okay? I don't know how many. He knows all the sparrows. We know all of that. He knows more than just that. He also knows Every single thought, he knows the contents of every thought that has entered your mind. He knows what's in your heart. Now, when I say in your heart, I don't mean valves and blood. When the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about the core of who you are, the seat of your emotions, your will, your desires, your wants, your cravings, your aches, your pains, what you love most. Out of your heart comes the words you say. Out of the heart comes your actions. Jesus knows what's there. He knows why you do what you do. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. John tells us this in three different ways in today's passage. Number one, he says Jesus knew all people. Okay? He knows everybody. Number two, he didn't need any witnesses about man. Now, that's interesting. Jesus didn't need any witnesses. Guess what, parents? You know you need a witness. You, go, you hear screaming from across the room. You go into said room, and you receive contrary reports about what's happening. <laughs> she said this. She said that. He did this. He did that. And you wish for the wisdom of Solomon at the such times that you could just split the baby in half, right? You don't know what actually went down. So you seek witnesses. And most of the time, you don't know what happened. So you either don't discipline them at all or you discipline them all, right? Everybody's getting grounded today, right? Because I don't know what's happening. Jesus didn't need witnesses. What does that mean? He, you could never go, well, that's not what's in my heart. Jesus knows what's in your heart. He knew why they did what they did. So when we, this is important for us to understand because many times you can read Jesus and go, wow, he was harsh. He knew what was in that person's heart. So he said it in the exact way that that person needed to hear it, okay? Jesus knows what's in the heart of all men. And then it says, he himself knew what was in man. This means that Jesus of Nazareth had and has intimate personal knowledge of every single person who has ever lived, and that includes you. Now, this is meant to show us that Jesus is far more than an interesting man. He's far more than just a miracle worker. Jesus is none other than God himself with flesh on. But this is where things get a little weird. I don't know how many times in my life I have wished that I was there when Jesus did a miracle or showed his omniscience like he did with Nathaniel in chapter one, right? I was, man, I wish I was there and see Jesus walk on water. I wish I was there when Jesus raised, raised, Nat, or raised um, uh, oh my goodness, Lazarus from the dead. Thank you. <sighs> Lazarus from the grave. I wish I was there to see him take the bread and multiply it. Oh, 
It, wouldn't it be so much easier to believe that Jesus is the Son of God if you could see him do a miracle with your own eyes? How many times, how many of us have thought that before? It'd be so much easier if I could just see Jesus turn water into wine, right? Oh, it'd be so much easier. Well, here's what Jesus says. Jesus actually says, no, it wouldn't. According to Jesus, your eyes have almost nothing to do with real, living, saving faith. Let's jump back into verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now, when it says many people believed in his name, scholars believe there's probably 300-something thousand people at the Passover celebration. So you're talking about thousands of people saw Jesus do some pretty miraculous things and they believed in his name. But now look what he's about to say in verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Now, this is actually a play on words that's hard for us to pick up in our English translation. The Greek word for believe is also translated trust. So here's what John is actually saying. Many people trusted in Jesus, and yet Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Or you could say, many people believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them why not? Well, we see why not. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, they trusted in Jesus, but Jesus didn't trust in them because Jesus knew their heart. Verse 23 says, we, we, we see, we use that, well, why did these people believe in Jesus? Verse 23 says, they believed in Jesus because the, they saw the signs that he was doing. They saw the signs with their eyes. Here we learn something important about faith. Eye faith isn't necessarily saving faith. These people saw the signs and they followed Jesus and were impressed with Jesus because they saw what he could do, but their faith wasn't Saving faith. In other words, they looked at Jesus like we look at a vending machine. Right? You look at a vending machine. First off, you have no emotional connection to that vending machine unless you've been on like a five-hour flight and you're starving, right? Right? You look at a vending machine and you approach a vending machine and you put some money into the vending machine and then you hope to receive something back from it, right? And here's the reality. When that thing stops put, putting out for you, you have nothing for it, right? That's how these people saw Jesus. They wanted something from him. They needed physical healing. They needed emotional healing. They needed food in their stomach. And so they came to Jesus. And as long as he was providing the signs for them, they put their faith in him. But that kind of eye faith is not real saving faith. And therefore, it's dead faith. Do you remember the scene with Thomas after Jesus had been crucified and resurrected? 
Do you remember this scene? I kind of feel bad for Thomas, actually. Thomas, we all know him as what? Doubting, Doubting Thomas. Can you, can you imagine the one time you missed that math equation in class and everybody else calls you stupid Johnny from that moment on? There's bad math Johnny, right? The whole, for the rest of your life, that's Doubting Thomas. One bad scene and the guy is known forever as Doubting Thomas. Well, here's what happens, the old Doubting Thomas. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. This was his first, his first nickname. He went from the twin to Doubting Thomas. Well, listen, he was not with them when Jesus came. So in other words, Jesus says, everybody saw him die on the cross, put in the tomb, but now Thomas wasn't there when Jesus was resurrected and came back and showed himself to the other apostles. So the apostles tell him, hey, guess what? I know we watched him, put him in a grave, but he got up. Jesus is resurrected to new life. He's got a new body. And Thomas is like, no, no. Now look what he says here. They all say, so the other disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, now again, Thomas has seen, the, he's seen all the miracles of Jesus. He's seen the walking on the water. He's seen all, the, the loaves multiplying. He's had eye faith. He's had plenty of eye faith. But in the, when it comes to resurrection, nope, Jesus can't beat death. No way. This is what he says. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's hardened unbelief. Many atheist agnostic people come to Jesus with this type of faith. If Jesus gives me a sign, then I'll believe. If Jesus puts a million dollars in my bank account, then I believe. If Jesus will heal my body, then I'll believe. If Jesus gives me the spouse I'm looking for, then I will believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Look, do not disbelieve, but believe. Doubt your doubts. Trust me. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen? Look, do you have eye faith? Is that why you have faith? You have faith because you actually saw? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. In other words, real saving faith is not eye faith. It's something else. See, there is a type of faith that believes in Jesus, but then when the signs are gone, the faith is gone as well. In this moment, it says thousands believed in him, but after the crucifixion and the resurrection and they're in the upper room, how many are there? 120. See, only 120 had saving faith. Only 120 had real faith. The masses believed in one sense but their faith was not a saving faith. Their faith was not a living faith. It was a dead faith. So that's what we see this morning. Number one, I faith alone is dead faith. And dead faith is not saving faith. Now I could give you two more examples of dead faith that isn't saving faith. In James, the brother of Jesus says this. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Whoa. 
Here's what James is saying. Satan and the demons saw Jesus do miracles. They were cast out by Jesus. They know who he is. They saw his death. They saw his resurrection. They saw his ascension. That means demons have better theology than anybody in this room. They know exactly how many people were present at the crucifixion. They know exactly how long it took Jesus to die. They know exactly what Jesus said on his, on his death. They know exactly what Jesus said on his resurrection. Demons have better intellectual faith than anybody in this room. They know all the facts. They know all the details. And yet they are not saved because intellectual faith or head faith alone is not saving faith. You can know all kinds of theological truths about God. You can know all about Jesus and all about the word of God and about who he is and what he said and what he did and yet still not know Jesus in a saving way. If you grew up in church, this should, that should really wake you up this morning. There is a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus in a saving way. Then James says one of the most uh, common, one of the most popular things that he's ever written. And he says this, faith without works is also dead. In other words, true faith is a living faith. It's a living thing. It's something organic that when it comes inside of us, it produces a change inside of us. It's a faith that changes us from the inside out. It's, it's more than just being impressed with Jesus. And oh, I saw the signs. I believe it. Even the sign of his resurrection. Yeah, I believe Jesus got up from the grave. It's more than that. Saving faith is more than assenting to the facts of the resurrection. We don't just believe in his signs. We aren't just convinced intellectually that Jesus is the son of God and he rose from the dead. Faith has to reach down inside of us in such a way that it changes us from the inside out. What does that mean? It changes what we love, changes who we love. It changes what we desire. And as God changes those things, those changes will necessarily come out our fingertips. See, the Bible says what happens in the heart comes out your mouth. What happens in your heart comes out in your life. Your theology will always work itself out in the rest of your life. Living faith produces new works, new actions, new beliefs, new thoughts, new deeds. James says, if your faith isn't producing real, tangible fruit in your life, then it's dead faith, and dead faith isn't saving faith. So this is one of those moments where we see that Jesus isn't messing around. There are thousands of people coming to him. Many people want something from him. They need healing or want to see a sign. And yet Jesus doesn't trust them. He sees their heart. He discerns their motives. Oh, you're treating me like a vending machine. He knows they don't really love him. They might find Jesus useful in the moment, but they don't find him beautiful. They don't find him glorious. They don't find him all-possessing. They see his signs, but can't see his glory. Jesus knows 
if I stop performing for them, they'll walk away from me. Can I ask you this morning, is that how you see Jesus? Are you only interested in Jesus because you need a little help in your life? You see Jesus as an accessory to your life? If that's you, Jesus says, no thanks. He won't entrust himself to you. Why? 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 Jesus says right here in this passage, because he sees what's in your heart. Now, this might be the point that it's going to be the hardest for many of us to follow. Um, and this is the, probably the hardest truth to swallow, actually. Um, I was born in 1979. Yes, the 70s. That's a long time ago. 44 years ago, to be exact. And every, ever since I was a child, I have heard from our culture, uh, from my teachers, from my counselors, from the media, from every book I read, nearly every mo movie that I ever saw, that people are basically good. That I am basically good. That our hearts are basically good. That we should trust our hearts and follow them if we want to have a real and authentic life. I was taught that the major problem with people is that their parents or somebody else had actually harmed their self-esteem. And because they had low self-esteem, they did bad things. In other words, they just don't know how good they are. If they understood how brilliant they were, how beautiful they were, how good they were, they would live that way. Well, let me just tell you that this is one of the most pervasive lies that our culture has told us over and over and over again. In fact, it might be the biggest lie you have ever swallowed and you might not even know it was a lie. You've heard it so many times, it, you just think it's true. Well, I'm going to tell you, it goes against all Scripture, it goes against all Jesus' teaching, and it also goes against all empirical evidence. Let me give you one example of empirical evidence. Researchers interviewed, in the last 20 years or so, uh, lifelong criminals in prison. They were in prison for life. And they assumed that they were going to find that the majority of them had incredibly low self-esteem. What they actually found out was the exact opposite. They had incredibly high self-esteem. They thought they were awesome. They thought they were always right and everyone else was wrong. It was the judge who was wrong. It was the prosecutor who was wrong. It was the police officer who was wrong. It was the it was everybody else, but it wasn't me. Everybody else is messed up, but not me. Now don't don't you think that's a problem? Right? No doubt. No doubt that person's mom from the very beginning Honey, I know your heart. I know what's in your heart. He's talking back. Well, you don't know what's in his heart. He's got a good heart. He's beating up his brother and sister. Well, he's got a good heart. He's stealing from this. I know, I know, officer, I know, but he's got a good heart, right? He, 
I do all this bad stuff, but I've got a good heart. Don't, do you think that's a problem? All these guys sitting in prison with good hearts? <laughs> Child molesters and serial killers think they've got good hearts, and the rest of us are just behind the times. It's a major problem. Well, the second thing we see is directly from Jesus' teaching today, where Jesus says he is actually a heart inspector. And he knows how to get in a person's heart and actually see what's there. He says this, he knows all people. He knows what's in your heart. Now, to help us understand this, I'm going to use a metaphor. It's a metaphor that I'm borrowing from C.S. Lewis. I want you to imagine yourself or your heart as a living house. And Jesus comes in as a heart inspector like a building inspector comes into your home. Now that changes your relationship with Jesus right away more than likely. Because you invite your neighbor into your home and your neighbor comes in, oh, I love what you did with the place, the decorations, everything is beautiful. Oh, it's so quaint and they want to sit down. But a building inspector comes into your home and doesn't care about any of the accoutrements that you've put in front of everybody to make them look at them, right? Building inspector comes into your home and says, let me see the basement. Let me look under the sink. And you don't want to look under the sink. Let me get behind the Christmas ornaments. Let me look at the foundation. Let me look at your electrical panel. Let me look at your mechanicals. Let me get and look where that smell is coming from. Right? <laughs> you got all the Glade, Glade plugins upstairs, but not in the basements. That's where he's going. Jesus comes into our heart like that. Unimpressed with what we put in the front room and focused on going to the basement, going to the bones. He's going down into the crawl space. In other words, Jesus is going to places in your heart that no one else can get to. He, he knows your deepest, darkest fears. He knows where that smell is coming from. He's going down where the bodies are buried. Where all the junk that you don't want to have to deal with has been stuffed in totes and hidden away in closets. Jesus is going to get into all that mess. What's he going to find there? Well, if you were raised in this culture like me and you haven't read too much of your Bible, he's going to find rainbows and flowers. He knows how sweet my heart is. Right? He's going to be just like everybody else, think it's just all sunshine and rainbows in there. Well, no, Jesus can actually see into your heart, can actually go into the real heart. And he actually understands what the Old Testament says about us as well. So he, before I get into this, let me remind us. Humankind was made good, okay? We were made good, and then Adam and Eve sinned, and that brought about a fracture, and sin infected us all. So since Adam and Eve, we've all been born in sin. That means we were born with a darkened heart. We're born with a darkened mind. All right, that's what it looks like. So here's, I was reading my Bible this week and I was in Ecclesiastes and this is how Solomon describes the heart in chapter nine, verse three. Also, the hearts 
of the children of man are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. Now listen, I, I use this example a lot because I have, I always, I've had a lot of kids for the last, you know, 16 years. And I, every time I get a kid, I get a kid and I realize right away they don't have pure hearts. They, have, they are a little bitty, authority, you know, they are basically a ruler, a tyrant in a little bitty body, right? If they had absolute authority, they would rule all of our lives. That's exactly, but they don't, right? They're, they come to us like this, but they're a little authoritarian in this little bitty body that just demands things all the time. Solomon says, evil is in their heart. And then look what it says. Madness, madness is in their hearts. We look at our world today and we see it going mad. Things that are completely contrary to reality. Madness means crazy. Well, why? Because our good old, good-hearted grandmother and our mother and grandfather and father and everybody else has been telling us, follow your heart. Well, Solomon, 4,000 years ago, Solomon says, whoa, your heart is evil and there's madness there. Don't follow your heart. But we're, we're, we're a lot smarter you know, we're a lot smarter than, than Solomon, supposedly, right? And so we've been telling our children, follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. And now a little boy looks into his heart and says, oh, you should become a girl. And he thinks that he can do it. And now he follows madness. This is, might be the most prevailing lie in all of our society. Follow your heart? Solomon says, yeah. Into madness. Then Jeremiah says this, the heart is deceitful above all things. How many of you guys like it when somebody lies to you? Anybody? No, we hate that. We hate to be deceived, right? We hate to be deceived. So if somebody lies to us, what do we do? We don't trust them. And then if somebody lies to us multiple times, what do we do? We, we don't trust them anymore. We, try, we probably try to cut them out of our life. I can't trust you. You are an untrustworthy person, so I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Jeremiah says, your heart has lied to you more than anybody else in the history of the world. It's deceitful above all things. It says, just do that. Nobody will notice. It says, just sleep in when you know you shouldn't sleep in. It says, just eat another donut when you know you shouldn't have another donut. It says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody will find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go out with that guy. Go out with that girl. It doesn't really matter. Trust your heart. Your heart is a liar. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, this is who can understand it. I, the Lord, that's Jesus, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So we see right away, how is our heart sick? Well, one, it's a liar. It's deceitful. It tells us lies. And two, this is what Proverbs says. Proverbs says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Right? When you see something, you look at somebody and go, why did they do that? They thought it was the right thing to do. And you're like, how could they have thought that is the right thing to do? 
because our heart lies to us. <laughs> and that's, that's the way it goes. I can't tell you how many people come to me because they follow their heart and they think their heart is telling them to do something that God is telling them to do when their heart is actually just telling them to do what it wants to do. So I have people come to me and say, oh, God wants me to divorce my wife and marry another person. And I say, no, God's not telling you to do that. That's what your heart is saying. Jesus says he hates divorce. So nope, that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus at all. I can't tell you how many times I hear this over and over and over and over in counseling meetings. God's telling me, no, no, that's your way. That's what you want. That's your heart. You need to separate your heart. If you want to know what God wants, it's not what you feel inside. It's not even what you think in your mind. It's what God's word says. This is the only way we can trust we know God's thoughts on any subject. So it says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs his heart. In other words, one of the signs of a bad heart is I actually trust myself. I trust my thoughts. I trust my feelings. I trust my desires. I trust my heart. I actually think I know what I need. I know what's best for me. I think my ways are the right ways. And here's what happens. I usually, when I'm, when I'm in this mode with this bad heart, I look to Jesus to get him to follow my script. Here's what it means. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a script. Here's how I want my life to go. Okay? This is when I'm going to get married. This is what he's going to look like or she's going to look like. This is how many kids we're going to have. This is the type of job he's going to have. All of these different scripts. And then I, I bring my script for how I want my life to go. I bring it to Jesus and I say, Jesus, here's what I want from you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to give you my life. I'm putting my faith in you. But here's the script of my life, and I want you to bless it. I want you to make this happen for me. Give me the health. Give me the wealth. Give me the children. Give me all the stuff that I want. And Jesus shockingly says, no thanks. We've been taught that if you bring your little paper to Jesus, he will take it and he will go, oh, this is what you want me to do? Thank you for inviting me into your story. Thank you that I get to be, you know, a supporting actor in your drama. Jesus is so sweet and so precious and just, he's so into you that he would just love to be a minor actor in your play. Except this Jesus that we read about today says, I did not entrust myself to them because I saw what's in their heart. So in other words, I took their script and said, cute, no thanks. If you are trying to use Jesus like this in your life, you only walk with him to get things from him. That's I faith. I'll follow you as long as my marriage is going well. I'll follow you as long as my kids are doing great. I'll follow you as long as the money's in the bank. I'll follow you as long as I don't have to be around any people that I don't like. I'll follow you. I'll worship you. I'll give everything to you. Except I won't come on Sunday morning. That's just too much. I won't give them my finances. No, no way. It's too much. That's I faith. And I faith, E-Y-E, I faith is not saving faith. 
I faith. You're still looking for signs. You're looking for the happy marriage, the good kids, the health and wealth, the peace, joy, whatever your heart really wants. You see Jesus as a means to an end and not the end itself. You want the stuff that Jesus can give you, but you don't really want him. You're treating him like a vending machine. The prophet Jeremiah says that's the sign of a bad heart, a heart that trusts in man and his works and not in God. Can I ask you this morning? Do you trust yourself? Do you, do you trust your heart? Do you think that you should follow your desires? Do you listen to your heart and believe it's going to lead you in a good and blessed life? Now, I'm going to be honest. Nearly Everyone I talk to and counsel does. Nearly everyone believes, even many Christians, they just, they're just walking around and they're always, I, this, well, this is what I feel, this is what I feel, this is what I feel. And they're being led by their feelings into madness. This is one of the leading, maybe the most, the, the, the leading issue of our day. We trust ourselves far too much. Listen to what Jeremiah says. This is the extended context of that passage. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man or woman who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. In other words, cursed is the man who walks with only eye faith. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. They only want what they can get from God. And as soon as he stops giving them what they want, they walk away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. In other words, if, you're look, if your faith is only I faith, what can Jesus do for me lately? Your life is going to be desolate. You're not going to have eternal life. You're not going to have fruitfulness in this life that only comes through Christ. But look at the opposite of that. Blessed, blessed is the man or woman who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, not just in what he can do, but who he is. Look, he or she is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. In other words, when I'm trusting in the Lord, I am eternally fruitful. I get eternal life when I take my trust away from my own heart, away from my own self, and I put my trust on Jesus. He produces in me an evergreen faith. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, what should this cause us to do? This should cause us to realize that our greatest problem in life, listen, it's not money. It's not relationships. 
Our greatest problem isn't emotions. Our greatest problem in life is our heart. We love ourselves more than we love God, our creator. When you realize this, when the light bulb comes on here, you begin to distrust your own heart. You begin to distrust yourself. And you say, whoa, is that, hold on, is that me or is that God? Is that my desires or is that God's desires? And when you realize this, one of the things you're meant to do is ask God for a new heart. What? This is what it says in Ezekiel 36. If you do this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So we were born with one kind of heart, but he will give us a new kind of heart through the spirit. Well, how? I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. That's the dead heart that we were born with. And I will give you a heart of flesh. That's the heart that comes through the spirit. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the good news here this morning. Jesus Christ comes into our heart as a heart inspector. He gets down into the bones of things. He gets down into the mess. He realizes, or he, he, this is what the building inspector does. He gives you a list of all the things that are wrong, that must be repaired. That's what he does. Jesus shows us all the things that are wrong with our heart, but Jesus is more than a heart, trans, he's more than a heart inspector. He's also a heart doctor. And he promises to take out our heart of stone and give us a new heart of flesh. Well, what does that look like? Go to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. This is how Paul the Apostle in the New Testament describes this. He says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, we were born sinners. And what does it mean to be born sinners? It means you have a spiritually dead heart. What does it mean to have a spiritually dead heart? It means you are spiritually dead. We come into this world spiritually dead. Now here's a tough question for you. Um, how does a spiritually dead person heal themselves? How does a physically dead person heal themselves? They can't. They need someone or something from the outside to heal them. Whether they've only been dead for a few seconds or a few minutes and you can shock them and bring them back to life, they need something from the outside to save them. They need something from the outside to bring them back to life. Well, the same is true for us. We are born spiritually dead. We cannot revive ourselves. We cannot come to life ourselves. We need God on the outside of us to come into our spiritual house, come into our heart, remove the heart of flesh, give us a new heart, and cause us to be born again. That's what we have to have. Look how Paul describes it. Among, verse 3, Among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Here it is, verse 4, But God, 
What's going to give us a new heart? What's going to bring us back to spiritual or bring us to spiritual life? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now this should blow your mind. Think of it. You, you walk into a morgue. There's a body laying on the table. It's dead and lifeless. And Jesus, this is us spiritually. And Jesus says, I love this person. Right? Most of us grossed out. No, no, no. This person can do nothing for me. This person is dead. And Jesus decides to put his love, his gracious love on a spiritually dead person. That's us. And what does he do? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Jesus Christ takes a spiritual corpse and loves him and loves her and brings him back to life and puts a new heart in her and in him. That's the gospel. Jesus has done everything possible to give you new life, to bring you back to life spiritually. And he goes on and on and on, does this. Look, verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Look, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Why do we want to talk about us being spiritually dead? Because that's how I understand that it was all God and not me. I didn't clean myself up. I didn't become a better person. I didn't pray the right prayers or do the right things or go to the right church to get saved by God. None of that stuff saved me. God himself through Jesus Christ saved me. It was none of my works and it was all Christ's work on my behalf. That's what it means to be saved by grace. And that should just blow up in our mind and make us really excited about Jesus. Amen. Not a result of works, so that no one will boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Here's the, here's the idea. Maybe you have eye faith this morning. You, you treat Jesus like the vending machine. and I'll believe in you, Jesus, as long as you give me the life I want. Maybe you have head faith this morning. Intellectually, yeah, Jesus was a good teacher. I believe he was a miracle. I believe he was the son of God. You know, you have intellectual faith. But, but listen, eye faith and head faith are, are both dead faith. Maybe you have, you have kind of some kind of nominal faith in Jesus, but it hasn't produced real works in your life, real life change in your heart. Listen, here's the good news. Here's the good news. If you let the heart inspector in. If you let him in, he can touch your dead faith and bring it to life. He can take your intellectual faith and make it a heart trusting faith. He can take your eye faith and give it a life changing life, just all absorbing, real, living, vital faith. I ask you this morning, let Jesus in. Let him in. Whatever minuscule faith you have, he can touch it and bring it to life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you know what's in the heart of man. You know what's in all of our hearts this morning. And if we've been 
If we've been changed, if we've been born again, then we have that new living heart, but we know we are also tempted to follow our old dead heart as well. And so we don't even trust our heart, as Paul said. We don't even trust our heart. We trust you who knows all things. And so we bring our hearts to you, our advocate this morning, and we ask that you would cleanse them, heal them, direct them, instruct them, shape them how you want to shape them. We come to this meal this morning as the Lord has told us to in the night that he was betrayed, that you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body. And you took the cup and you said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Father, we lift it up to you this morning. We ask that you would feed our faith, feed our hearts. We ask that you do all this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.